0: So that's Matthew 16 on page 991, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ.
1: Now we're obviously in the city, and in the city prospects are a big deal. There are sales prospects, investment prospects, prospects for dividends, maybe the prospect of a bonus. And then in our gathering this morning, well, there are a number who've come to the end recently or getting to the end of GCSEs and A-levels or university degrees. And naturally, at these points in life, we think about prospects for further education, prospects for employment. Or maybe if you're a sports fan this weekend, you've been thinking about prospects for Man City winning a treble, or prospects for England in the ashes in cricket. But this passage this morning is talking to us about the prospects for the church. And what would we say are the prospects for the church in 2023? 2023. I guess sitting in a fairly full building this morning, we might feel quite positive about it. But then, if we were people that read the statistics or the news articles, well, there's always that article talking about decline in church attendance and the lowest number of people ticking the Christian box in the UK census, census since records began. Or perhaps if we took a note of the work of the charity Open Doors we know that 360 million Christians are suffering severe persecution or discrimination in the world today. Or maybe closer to home, it's tomorrow morning, Monday morning. And as we walk into work or we head into school, we're conscious that we're walking into a culture that's pretty hostile to Jesus. In fact, the 4 p.m. congregation a few weeks ago had an evening, guest evening, and the title of it was, Is Christianity Bad for the World? And they picked it because, well, the people in the congregation said that's what their friends were saying. Well, it would have been the same, too, for Matthew's first readers. They lived in a culture that was seeking to sideline Christianity, hostility from Jerusalem or Rome. And actually, it's what we've been seeing over the last few weeks, in Matthews chapter 14, 15, and 16, on the one hand, Jesus has been displaying the glory of his kingdom, but it's seen in a context of hostility and unbelief. And so it could be possible to be discouraged about the prospects of the church, or to feel like we've got to come up with some kind of silver bullet to fix it, some special method for church growth that we've been missing. But this morning, Jesus wants us to be confident and have convictions, confident that the prospects for the church are always rock solid for his church and have conviction that the task of his disciple never changes. So we're looking at these verses. They're right in the heart of our section, and they come at the climax of three chapters in which Matthew's been showing us the ugliness of unbelief. And he's been showing us it so we might recoil at it, but we won't want it. And then he's been showing us Jesus and his kingdom and the wonder of it so that we'll be strengthened in our faith and come to him. And in chapter 16, we've just been warned of the danger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They don't accept who Jesus is. They don't believe in him. And Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of their teaching. It's dangerous. But here now we see Jesus again. And here we're assured that everything we've seen about Jesus' kingdom is really certain and sure. Jesus wants us to be confident that he will build his church and nothing will stop it. And he wants us to have conviction about exactly how he'll do it. So we've got two key declarations this morning. I've been thinking of them this week as the you tell me and the I tell you. So verse 15 and 16 is the you tell me. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Jesus replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verse 18 is Jesus and the I tell you. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're going to look at each in turn. And first Peter's climactic confession. Jesus is the Christ. Through this section, the issue has been Jesus' identity. It began in chapter 13 with people asking, where did Jesus get this wisdom and these mighty works? And isn't this the carpenter's son? Who is he? And then in chapter 16, we've just had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, they failed to see the signs right in front of them of who Jesus is. And so Jesus takes his disciples away, and it's the same question. Verse 13 Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Son of Man is a title from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, and it refers to God's appointed, eternal, global king. And so when Jesus asked this question to his disciples, he's not hiding his identity He's saying who he is. Because the thing we're to be looking at here is the contrast between what people are saying and then what the disciples say. And what people say, well, it misses the mark. They call him John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. And those are important prophets. And in a sense, those answers sound pretty positive. But actually, they fail to recognize the signs. They say that Jesus really is just another prophet. An answer like that is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's unbelief. And actually, it's so contemporary. The answers of the first century are so similar to the answers of the 21st century. On Thursday afternoon, I popped out into the Aviva square behind us to ask the same question of some people sitting in the sun. And there were a range of answers. And someone said, Jesus was the son of God. But lots of people reached for a kind of positive comment that kept Jesus firmly at arm's length. So some said he was a myth, but he does give hope. Or he's an anomaly that somehow brings people together. Or an important figure for society, a valuable reference point for morality, a good ideal, a refreshing teacher, positive things, but nothing more. Jesus at arm's length, the 21st century equivalent of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah the leaven of the Pharisees. And so Jesus turns to ask his disciples, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And the reply is in striking contrast to everything the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been saying and the authorities and these people that the disciples refer to. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 15 is a plural question. He's asking all the disciples. But Peter's the one who replies. And it's just worth noting that here, that there's this pattern all through these chapters that Peter acts as a kind of representative of the 12 disciples, like the lead disciple, as if what he does is representative of them all. And as he answers Jesus, he hits the bullseye. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the first time in our section Jesus is called the Christ. And Christ is not a surname, it's not Jesus Christ like a surname, it's a title. The Hebrew word is Messiah, and it means anointed one. And the Old Testament expectation is that the Christ would rule as God's king over all the earth and bring refuge to everyone who came and submitted to his good rule. So that picture in Daniel 7, the Son of Man ruling over the nations, over the world. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised Israel's king David that from his line would come a king and he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever and call him the son of God. And in fact, in Psalm 2, we find the Lord's anointed himself speaking. And when he speaks, he says, I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession.'" For some time ago, I used to work in the IT industry, and there was a model of IT support called Follow the Sun Service desks. And maybe if you work in that world, you know what I'm talking about. I'll explain. This is where you would have a team of people supporting some kind of IT function, and you'd have some in the UK, and then you'd have some in India, and some in Australia, and some in America. And the idea is there would always be someone available where the sun was up for you to call and get help. At least that was the theory. Well, the Old Testament expectation of the Christ is that he would rule in reality wherever the sun is up and wherever the night has fallen. And Peter and his disciples have seen Jesus confirming his kingdom as he's done these signs, the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000, walking on the water. And they've seen the signs of the times. And Peter confesses, you are the Christ the son of the living God. It's the right title for Jesus. And Jesus' response, well, verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. See, this response is not just Jesus saying, you've got it right. It's actually loaded with significance and the significance of what Peter has said. To be blessed is the language of being right with God. To be in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks of the blessing of the one who has the kingdom. In chapter 11, he he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And all through the gospel, his message has been repent, that is, turn around. Stop following yourself, living for ourselves as king. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Peter's showing us the right response. And as Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're blessed. You're in the kingdom. When we acknowledge Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, and surrender to him, will we come into his kingdom? It might be that you're here this morning investigating the claims of Jesus. Well, the key question really is, who do you say Jesus is? And those answers of verse 14, while they may sound positive, But like the Aviva Square answers, well, there's still the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is held out for all who confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and come under his rule. But Jesus says more in verse 17, and it's really important that we see this. He goes on to say, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And what Jesus is saying here is that Peter's climactic confession, it's not just a lucky guess. It's not just because Peter's been especially observant. It's not even because he's from the right family. Simon bar Jonah means son of a man called Jonah or John. Jesus is saying Peter wasn't told this by his dad. No, he said Peter was told this by Jesus' father who's in heaven. See, God has revealed this truth to Peter. And so in the midst of all these wrong verdicts about who Jesus is, here we have Peter's verdict, and Peter's verdict is emphatically God's verdict. What Peter says about Jesus is what God says about Jesus. Or if you like to put it another way, Peter has just declared God's authoritative word about Jesus. And it's because of this climactic confession that you tell me, but Jesus can make a definitive declaration that I tell you. Peter's climactic confession leads to Jesus' definitive declaration. And this is our second point, verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word for church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it simply means a gathering or an assembly. So it can mean any kind of gathering. It could mean the school assembly, or it could mean a regional political assembly, or perhaps a protest in Parliament Square. In Acts 19, it's used to describe a mob rioting in the city of Ephesus. And so it's worth just saying and being clear that this means church. Well, it's not actually a building. It's a gathering of people. The stone structure we're in this morning is not in itself a church. What this is, is a useful and fairly elaborate room for a church to gather in. In his book, God's New Community, on the bookstore over there, Graham Bynon tells the story of one of his sons pointing and saying, look, daddy, people are going into church. To which his wife wisely responded, actually, the church is going into a building. So for Jesus to be building his church, well, it's for Jesus to be gathering his people And the whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of God gathering a people that he would dwell with and bless. It's the picture we've been seeing over the weeks in chapters 14 and 15 of Jesus confirming his kingdom. And all through the Old Testament, the focal point of God's gathering is a mountain or a rock. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and there he spoke to them. And he made them his possession. And in our first reading in Numbers, we read of Israel gathering. We might say churching at the rock. And it's the same rock called Horeb or Sinai. And so when Jesus says here to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Well, it's a great moment of reassurance and excitement. Because there may be hostility to Jesus and his kingdom. And there may be leaven to watch out for. But here we see God's plans totally on track because here is Jesus, the Christ, declaring the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament picture has been pointing to. Here is the rock on which the church will be built. But it's not horrible. Remarkably, Jesus seems to be saying, it's Peter. Now, we're going to need to concentrate for a few minutes here because we need to think, well, in what sense is Peter the rock on which Jesus will build his church? Because verse 18 has been a verse that sparked lots of discussion over the centuries. Um, and it's because there's a play on words here. The word for rock is Petra. And Peter has just renamed Simon bar jo- Jesus has renamed Simon bar Peter or Petros. It sounds like rock. So it's as if Jesus is saying, you are called rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. But what exactly does he mean? Because this has led Roman Catholic theologians to use this verse to justify the existence of the Pope and to argue that Peter is the infallible authoritative rock and the authority is then passed down in succession to Pope after Pope after Pope after Pope. pope. And it's all focused on that individual. But actually, when we read these verses, we just look at them, there's nothing mentioned at all here about succession or infallibility or exclusive authority. And crucially, we've been seeing that what Jesus says in verse 18, this declaration, it follows on from what Peter has just said in verse 16, his confession. Because Peter is the one who's just spoken the God-given authoritative word about Jesus. And so here in verse 18, it's as if Jesus says, yes, that's right. You, Peter, have the true word God-given about me. And so, in so far as you speak that true word about me, you're the rock on which I'll build my church. Peter's the rock insofar as he speaks the word of truth about Jesus. And it is a word ultimately that points to Jesus and, and points to Jesus as the true rock, the cornerstone of the church. That's how Peter understood it. In 1 Peter, he says, We're to come to Jesus, the living stone, not Peter, the living stone. But it's Peter's word. That will point us there. And Peter's word is what we might call the apostolic word. We've seen he's the lead disciple among the 12. And in God's salvation plan, he seems to have this um, lead role among the disciples. And so in the book of Acts, we see Peter's the one who preaches at Pentecost and proclaims that Jesus is the Christ and calls people to turn to him. And then we see Peter's the one who first takes the gospel to the Gentiles, But then we see the whole apostolic group are involved. They're all taking the word out to the world. And then we see other disciples passing on that same word as Jesus builds his church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the church is God's people gathered around the true word about Jesus. And that's so helpful for us because it helps us see that the church is not a denomination or an institution, so the Church of England is not in itself a church. Actually, the reality is that there are gatherings of Jesus' church, people assembling around the apostles' words, that just happen to use the structures and the connections of the Church of England. And similarly, there are also some gatherings which have rejected or corrupted the apostles' word, that may seek to use the same structures, but are not Jesus' church. That's exactly how the reformers understood it right back in the 16th century, The article on the church in the 39 articles begins, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of believers in which the pure word of God is preached. And so denominations may lose their way, but where there are people gathering around the word about Jesus in submission to him and his wonderful rule, well, there's the church and it continues to grow. And it might be in a building like this, or it might be in a school hall, Or it might be secretly in a home. Or it might be a hut in a jungle in northern Cambodia. Or it might be in a barn or an open field or a battlefield. Where Jesus' people gather around the apostolic word, there's the church. And so what are the prospects for the church in 2023? Well, we can say rock solid. Because Jesus is the Christ. And the apostolic word is established, and He will build His church, and nothing can stop it. Look at it again at the end of verse 18. Jesus says, "On this rock I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And the language of "prevail" it's the language of a long-standing, waged battle. Think of the long-term conflicts in the world today. We ask the question, "Well, who will prevail?" Well, cultures may try to marginalize Jesus. Governments may persecute Christians. Wars may cause turmoil and distress. Denominations may lose their way. Satan will launch his assaults, but it won't stop Jesus gathering his church. He's the Christ. The apostolic witness is confirmed. The rock of their word is established. And even the gates of hell, death itself, won't stop Jesus building. Remember the banquet scenes of the feeding of the 5,000 the feeding of the 4,000, pictures of the victory banquet that King Jesus the Christ will serve as he gathers his people. It's in a banquet where we're told he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so knowing this great news, Well, what's the task for us as Jesus' disciples? Because Jesus wants us to have a real conviction about what our role is. And we see it in verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The image here, the big image here is keys. And of course, keys are about access. Keys open locks. I remember reading a book when I was at university that suggested all this talk of binding and loosing, what you bind in heaven and whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven, suggested that was about being able to decide rules and regulations on earth that would somehow affect what happened in heaven. Well, this can't be about creating rules and regulations, because the whole context is about Jesus gathering the church. And the image of keys, well, it's an image about opening and shutting. Keys open locks. This is a picture of the work on earth that opens and shuts the way to the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus says he'll give Peter the keys to that kingdom. But again, it's not that Peter's going to sit around deciding who's in and out, sort of as the gatekeeper, locking and unlocking the door. Because remember, this all follows on from what Peter's said, his confession in verse 16, the authoritative word about Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, you've got the true word about me revealed from the Father. And now as you go and proclaim it, well, I will gather my church. As the word goes out, it will open and shut the way to the kingdom of heaven as people accept it or reject it. And when someone accepts the apostolic word, they are loosed from the gates of hell and become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when that word is rejected, well, there's a warning too. Because to reject the word of Jesus is to refuse the keys, to remain bound. And these keys are not just for Peter, because the keys are the word about Jesus. The reformer Martin Luther put it like this. He said, the keys are the exercise of the ministry of the word, and they belong to all Christians. Over at the 10 o'clock service, they meet in St. Peter's Corn Hill. And on the way into the churchyard, they've got a very helpful visual aid. It's now a bit overgrown, to be honest. But above the gate, there's a figure. And above his head is a key. And it's Peter with the key to the kingdom. And what a great reminder to walk in and just to be reminded that as far as we proclaim the apostolic word about Jesus, we're holding out the keys to the kingdom. And so when you speak to a friend or a stranger about Jesus, you're holding out the keys. And when you open up a gospel and read it over coffee with a colleague, well, you're putting the keys to the kingdom on the table in Starbucks or in Costa. And as Christianity Explored courses run, at businesses around here, Bank of England, Accenture, Freshfields, BCLP, here at St. Helens, or as school CUs meet and open the Bible together, the keys of the kingdom are held out in offices and classrooms. If you join the city pastors team, you'll have opportunities not just to give out water and practical help, but on a Thursday night to people in trouble to hold out the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In prisons, I'm told that the key carriers need to make sure that they keep the key hidden at all times to prevent a skilled inmate from seeing the pattern and making a copy. Well, when David and the prison teams go in to lead services and Bible studies, they want to show their keys to everyone. They want to show the keys of the kingdom to as many prisoners as they can. Maybe we should think of it like this when we leave the house in the morning. Did you remember your keys? Well, we encourage anyone looking in on the Christian faith here on a Sunday morning to read a gospel account like Matthew's gospel because it's the authoritative apostolic witness to Jesus. It is the keys to the kingdom. So will you open it? Read it. Take the keys. Respond to Jesus' call to repent. As the word of truth about Jesus is proclaimed, Jesus will build his church. Across the world, as Jesus' disciples proclaim the truth about him, he is gathering his people. There's no other way he does it. I had a fascinating opportunity just after Easter to meet with a group of 20 Danish pastors who joined us on a Sunday morning, and they wanted to chat to somebody about what we do, and so I was available. And their question was, well, what are you seeking to do to grow as a church? And it's so tempting to try and come up with something really clever, like a silver bullet. But actually, it was a great opportunity to encourage them and to be reminded myself that we just need to remain confident in the apostolic word. The task of the disciple is the same in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century, to hold out the word about Jesus the Christ. So what are the prospects of the church in 2023? Well, Jesus wants us to be confident that the prospects for his church are rock solid, and that as he builds it, he wants us to be convinced that the task we all have as his disciples is always the same, to keep holding out the keys. Jesus is the Christ. The apostle's word is established, and on it he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you that your word about your son, which looses sinners from the gates of hell, is established and secure in the apostolic word. And thank you that it goes out, the Lord Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we ask that you would help us to keep holding out the keys of the kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.